We have a really great privilege, and having just heard her uh, preach this message, it is a, a great word, I think, that is going to be good for us as a community. Kara Stromberg works for our denomination, the area of children and families, and uh, she is married to Nate. They have three kids, and uh, Kara, in essence, in her role, is a pastor to pastors. And so she gets to work with uh, people on our next-gen team, many other churches around sort of the, the Midwest here. But we are honored and privileged to have Kara Stromberg come and bring God's word to us this morning. Would you please welcome her? Well, good morning. It's good to be here in Mankato. Uh, I live in St. Paul and grew up in Sioux Falls and still a lot of family there. So this is a route that I drive often. And I'm always glad for the, the opportunity to stop and spend some time here. Uh, again, uh, Brad mentioned that I work for the Northwest Conference, uh, which is the regional arm of the Evangelical Covenant Church. I'm the director of children and family ministry there. And this is a newly created position. I started about two years ago and work alongside Ginny Olson, our director of youth ministries, with the sole purpose being to equip and empower churches uh, to invest in young people, young people and families. How can we create uh, churches and ministries that get young people to have a faith that sticks with them beyond high school. And so I'm thrilled to be able to enter into this challenging and exciting work, to be able to equip and empower churches and ministry leaders to be able to do this. Uh, our, our priority at the conference is to encourage churches uh, to see ministry with children and families as a priority and not just a strategy, and to dream with churches about how to do, best, do that uh, best in really creative and innovative ways. Uh, we're here to serve churches and unite churches together in service. So again, it's an honor to serve in that role, and it's an honor to be here this morning. Uh, I was telling my husband before I came, he said, what are you preaching on? And I said, Joash. And he says, uh-huh, who's that? And if, if you're like uh, many of us, I'm guessing you could identify Joash as a biblical name, probably an Old Testament biblical name, but, but then if you're, if you're at all normal, uh, you sort of forget who this guy Joash was. And so I'm here to remind you, and this is a fascinating story that probably seems like it would come out of Soap Opera Digest, maybe a little more than, than the Bible. Uh, this is a, an interesting story, it's a juicy story, and there's a lot of applications for our life together. Uh, will you join me in prayer before we start? Gracious God, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for your holy word that you use to enlighten us and empower us. Give us ears to hear so that we might be attentive to what you might have to say to us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. I think the real reason Brad wanted me to preach today is because there's a lot of really hard to pronounce names in this story, so I'm happy to tackle that for you. So a bit of historical context that you need to know before we jump in. The Israelites had been ruled by judges for a period of time, and they asked for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. They said, thanks God for these judges, but everybody else has a king, so why can't we have a king? And God, in his gracious and loving way, said, okay, fine, you can have a king. And he gave them King Saul, then he gave them King David, and then he gave them King Solomon. And King Solomon did all right, and he built a huge temple of worship to the Lord. After the death of Solomon, this kingdom split in two. There was a northern kingdom, which was the ten tribes of Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, which was the two tribes of Judah. And where we read today the story of Joash comes from the southern kingdom, these two tribes of Judah. You can skim through this biblical history and you can get a listing of all the kings and one queen and all they did. Uh, these rulers ranged from bad to mostly bad to completely horrible to evil. 
with a smattering of a couple good guys in there who, who did right by the Lord. Chronicles, the book of Chronicles, was basically written as a report, sort of a historical report of here's the, here are the people, here's where they lived, here are the rulers, and this is what they did. So if you read it, keep that in mind, that it's written as a report. All right, jumping ahead to our passage for today. We're almost there. There's a couple key players that you need to know. The first one in chapter 22 is King Ahaziah. He was a bad king, and he was killed by Jehu from the northern kingdom. So when King Ahaziah died, his mom, Athaliah, became queen. She was not very happy about this. Well, maybe she liked being a queen, but she was not happy that her son was killed. And so she decided to have the rest of the family killed as well. She was a little bit crazy. So she had all of her offspring, all of their uh, siblings, even her grandchildren killed because she wanted to make sure that no one else was in line, no one else from the line of David would be in line for this throne. So she tried to wipe out the entire line and all of her family. The plot thickens. It appears that then for six years, God's, to God's people, that the royal line would have been extinguished, except for there was little baby Joash, who had been hidden in the temple by his aunt, Jehoshaphat. His aunt was King Ahaziah's sister. So baby Joash was Ahaziah's son. He was a baby, and he was sequestered away and hidden in the temple for the six, first six years of his life by his aunt. So he was raised in the temple while Queen, Queen Athaliah ruled in her reign of terror. Now, she would have no reason to go to the temple and find this secret little baby because she was a Baal worshiper. So she really didn't use the temple other than to just destroy things in it and take things out of it and use it and burn it. She erected a different temple for the worship of Baal. So she did not know about little baby Joash being raised in the temple. Jehoshaphat, this woman who saved baby Joash, was married to Jehoiada, the high priest. Are you with me with these names? There's going to be a quiz later, people. So Jehoiada, the high priest, decided after about seven years of this, the reign of this evil queen he, queen, he decided enough was enough. And he gathered the leaders together and he said, we have got to do something about this. And they basically stormed the temple and they grabbed this little King Joash who was seven years old and they surrounded him and protected him and they said, long live the king, this is our new king. Well, the queen didn't like this very much, and she tore her clothes and cried treason and said, um, I don't like this. I'm the queen. I'm the queen. And they said, no, you're not, and they had her killed. The plot thickens. Well, actually, it doesn't. Joash continues on uh, as a king. He starts at age seven, and um, imagine what that would have been like, right, to be crowned king at such a young age. The high priest Jehoiada brought peace to the land by ending this queen's reign, he helped Joash restore proper worship, which we'll read about in a minute. And he really served alongside King Joash for the rest of his life, for the rest of King Jehoiada's life. And he died at the ripe old age of 130. So this is a little bit of the backstory that you just need to know so you know how King Joash got into this place of serving as a king at such a young age. He was from the line of David, and so this was significant for these people, that he was from the line of David. And this is where we pick up in chapter 24 where little seven-year-old King Joash had just come out of hiding, he finds himself as the king in Jerusalem and where he starts to his reign of 40 years. I think it's fair to suggest that in these early years of his reign, King Joash was perhaps more of a figurehead, with a high priest Jehoiada really calling the shots. You know, if you imagine, um, little king, what would you like to do today? 
well, I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then I want to play with my Legos, and then I want to go swimming. So the high priest really had a significant role in this, this young king's life and really helped call the shots for this nation. But at some point in his reign, as it says in verse 4, Joash is credited with undertaking a huge project. He repaired and restored the 140-year-old temple of the Lord that King Solomon had built. This was a big deal because it had fallen into a state, a place of, of disrepair over years and years of neglect. And remember that the previous ruler, Queen, Queen Athaliah, was a Baal worshiper, so she had no use for the temple. And it was not only not being used, it was being plundered and looted by all of her followers. So it was in a bad place. They had taken all the articles of worship and used them now for their own worship of the false prophet Baal. Uh, eventually, Queen, uh, King Joash uh, undertakes the building of this temple. They manage to raise the funds. They hire people to do the work. People bring their money to contribute to the building of this project, and the work gets done. Joash is doing a really great job as king. He's working with the local authorities. He gets the project done on time and under budget. He's restoring proper worship to the community and all as well. And this project of repairing the temple was significant for a couple reasons. It was more than just the practical need to repair an old structure, although the physical restoration of this building was hugely significant. Buildings get old and they need to be fixed. Perhaps like our beloved Metrodome a few years ago, if you remember the, the, the craziness of the ceiling caving in and all of the snow coming through, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but I looked this up on YouTube and watched that video over and over and over because it was just so crazy. Buildings get old, they fall apart, and they need to be repaired. And for us as Minnesotans and true Vikings fans, can I make the assumption that maybe there's a lot of you that are Vikings fans? We don't need to get into a debate over this right now. But it would have been an abomination for us to leave the building in this state of disrepair. It's embarrassing. This is who we are. This is our team. These are our people. We had, to, we had to fix it. And again, I mentioned I live in the cities, and so I have the pleasure of driving by this new stadium construction project often. And it's crazy that we'll just build through the winter. And it's, it's so fascinating to drive by and to see this construction project and to say something is going on here. This is a big project. It never ceases to take my breath away. They've got these huge, these huge cranes that come in, and they lift these huge beams into place. And the construction of this project says simply something important is happening here. This is important to us because this is who we are. This will be the gathering place for the faithful, right? <laughs> this is what we're all about because we can't say that football is important to us and then have a lousy stadium. And it looks even more impressive at night as you drive by. You should, it's worth a drive up there or at least look online. So on one hand, this, this repairing of the temple was, something, some, was simply something practical that needed to be done. It was an old structure. It needed to be fixed. But more importantly, there was a spiritual renewal that happened with the repairing of the temple as well. It signified significant religious reforms for the community, and it was a call for spiritual renewal for the people. It was a symbol of the Lord's leading in their midst. And it was a reminder of God's care and concern for his people. And it also became a gathering place for the people to come together and to worship the Lord. It's a physical and tangible reminder that God is here in your midst. Repairing the temple represented a cleaning house type redirection for the people, a complete 180 degree turn from what they had been about under the previous ruler to now what they are going to be about again, God's people. 
Again, it was a reminder of how God had faithfully led them to this point and provided for their needs uh, to this place in history. It reminded them of their place in God's bigger story. So early on in King Joash's reign, high priest Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, between little King Joash, and between the people that they would be the Lord's people. So they tore down the temple of Baal and they reinstated worship at the temple of the Lord. Unfortunately, the story of Joash doesn't really have a happy ending. I mean, it'd be nice if we could say, oh yes, then they became the Lord's people and they lived happily ever, ever after and they followed the Lord's ways for all of time. But no, it doesn't happen that way. Because after a while, Jehoiada, Joash's mentor, friend, spiritual advisor, uncle, but probably more like a father figure if we're being really honest, and high priest of the land, reached the ripe old age of 130 and he died. And Joash changed his mind. He had a complete about face. He abandoned the Lord. He reinstituted pagan worship. He even went so far as to have Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, killed. Because Zechariah was sent as a prophet from the Lord to warn Joash that, hey, you're making some really stupid mistakes, buddy. This is a bad idea. And so Joash didn't like that, and he had the prophet of the Lord killed. And in fact, Joash dies a short time later after being severely wounded in battle. He went home and was recovering in his bed, and then he was killed by his own officials, the same people probably who advised him to have Zechariah killed. Now they were mad that he had Zechariah killed, and they decided to just finish him off. So what happened? What happened to King Joash that caused him to change his mind so completely and so fully and so drastically? How is it possible to even change your tune that much? I think a couple things happened, and these are alluded to in the text. The first is that he rejected wise counsel. He abandoned the Lord and no longer followed the wise words of the high priest, Jehoiada, who had guided him for his entire life. He also neglected the wisdom of the priests and the Levites, the religious leaders of the day. He rejected the words of the prophets who were sent to him to warn him. And again, when Zechariah comes to warn him in verse 20 with the message that Joash is disobeying the Lord's commands because it's keeping the nation from prospering. And, and Zechariah says, you have abandoned the Lord, and now he has abandoned you. It's as if Joash is, is literally going, la, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you, I don't want to hear you. So he completely rejected the wise counsel that had served him so well all of these years. And the second thing he did is that he endorsed poor counsel. In verse 20, it says that the leaders bowed before him and begged him to listen to their advice. Oh, Joash, please, just do things our way. You've been doing things that way for so long. Do it our way. We have some better ideas. He listens to these new voices who convince him to have Zechariah killed. He listens to these new voices who convince him to abandon the temple of the Lord, to abandon the God of their ancestors and to go back to their pagan ways. And Joash chose to listen instead to people who do not have the same values, the same history, the same agenda, or the same love for our Lord as he did. And finally, he simply lost his focus. Joash forgot what was important. You could say he succumbed to the winds of changing culture, but he gave the people what they wanted, right? Maybe he was just a people pleaser. When God said, you shall have no other gods before me, maybe Joash started to question, wow, did you really mean that? I mean, we still have you, but we also have these other things. No, he just lost his focus and he forgot the story. The sad thing about this story is that it's not an isolated case. 
In fact, Joash is one of quite a few kings and, in fact, leaders in biblical history who were led astray. The stories that immediately follow in 2 Chronicles talk of his son Amaziah and then King Uzziah, and they're eerily similar. In fact, the Bible as a whole is full of people who forget. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Did you mean this tree, God, or I just can't remember what you said. Well, it's pretty clear. And what about the Israelites after they were freed from slavery under Pharaoh? They were in slavery for all of these years, and God sent Moses to lead them out, and he sent all of these plagues, and then they, Pharaoh finally let them go free, and they crossed the Red Sea. And as soon as they get to the other side, and they're a little bit uncomfortable because God has them wait before going into the promised land, they start to complain. Moses, this is horrible. It would have been better if we had died as slaves in Egypt. They forgot how quickly we forget And if you read in the books of Judges and Kings and Chronicles and some of these Old Testament books with really long names of people, they're full of story after story about how people have neglected God because they simply forgot about the story of God's faithfulness and provision and leading and generation after generation. Suddenly life gets hard and they forget that they're a part of God's bigger story. The unsettling part for all of this for me is that I'm a lot more like Joash than I care to admit because I have a terrible, terrible memory. Um, It's inconvenient for me because I married into a family that all they love to do is sit around and quote movies. And I just feel completely out of these conversations because I don't remember. And I'm often the butt of family jokes because I just can't remember if I've seen movies or not. Recently, the family was talking about movies, as they do, and the movie Avatar came up. And they said, Kara, remember that part in Avatar where something happened? And I said, I don't know if I've seen that movie. And they said, Kara, are you kidding me? The characters are blue. How could you not remember something like that? And I said, I I honestly don't know. Is it a movie about some futuristic way that the world ends? Because that's probably like a lot of the other movies that I fall asleep during. But it's an embarrassment for me that I cannot remember this stuff. So I have to find ways to compensate. Because I can't rely on my own memory. I need to focus on the memory of others and the collective memory of these wise voices. If I need to know obscure artists and musicians and when they wrote certain things or painted certain paintings, I ask my husband. He's a walking encyclopedia. Fascinating. If I need help remembering which of my children got more time on the iPad yesterday, my other child is guaranteed to remember, and they will help me with that. For matters of deeper significance, for issues of vocation, of calling, of is God leading me to do this thing or not? What does this mean? I have mentors, I have colleagues, I have friends, I have pastors. I have people that I go to that help me get perspective and help me remember and redirect me toward what matters the most. So my prayer for all of us today is that we will not be like these leaders that we read about in Scripture, so quick to forget So quick to neglect what's important, forgetful about God's saving work in our lives. I pray that we're not so distracted and consumed by the culture around us that we forget that God simply loves us and wants what's best for us in our lives. Because for me, when I lose my focus and I take my eyes off of that which ought to be central, which is God, I forget about the goodness of that relationship. And I start to see it as only a bunch of rules and legalism. Legalism. Suddenly it seems boring and rigid in these deep, meaningful rituals that have sustained generation after generation of God-fearing people. These rituals suddenly lose their meaning for me. 
And a warning sign for me in my life is when I start to complain about how busy I am. That's when I know that I'm starting to lose my perspective. It's as if my busyness is something that is completely out of control. I have no say in it. Oh, Kara, how you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm driving my kids around and they're in all these sports and uh, I have all this stuff to do. Perhaps I just need to, to turn around and be a little more focused. I need some redirection in my life and a reminder of, of what is important. So I invite you to reflect with me this morning on what does this look like for you? How might you be in a place where you could remember what is important? The first question is who and what are you listening to? Who is speaking into your life? Who do you allow to speak into your life? And when I say who, I mean not just people. I mean media, books, shows, whatever. Who and what is speaking into your life? My mother would always say growing up, garbage in, garbage out. And of course I said, oh, mother, I know, I know. But she was right. When you allow those, uh, those other voices that lead you astray and lead you away from what is good and pure and right and noble and trustworthy and praiseworthy, as the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, we allow ourselves to be led astray. Are there people or things in your life that perhaps you need to get rid of and not listen to quite so much? I have a friend who's a, a, fam, a marriage and family counselor. And I said, what are you seeing these days in families? And she said, lots and lots and lots of anxiety. People are just anxious. And she asked them then about their social media use. And there's often a high correlation between highly anxious people and social media use. And says, I, she says, I advise them to just shut it all down. Just shut it all down for a period. And she sees the anxiety levels going way, way down. I don't know what it is for you. But maybe there are some voices in your life that you just need to turn off or turn down for a while so that you can be more fully focused on God and God's plan for your life and the fullness of life with Christ. As, as Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And I believe he really means that. So who are you listening to and who might you need to stop listening to so that you can experience more of that fullness of life with Christ? Remember I said that I'm, I'm so quick to forget and I am so thankful that we have the church calendar and we have seasons of this church year to help me remember. Because we're in Lent. When did Lent happen? Suddenly I realize I'm going to church and it's Ash Wednesday and I'm thinking I'm still trying to recover from Christmas. And this happened so fast but I am so thankful for these seasons of the church year that help me remember the story of God and the story of Christ and his work in the world and in our lives. I need these reminders because, again, I get so distracted by what's next. And so I invite you during this period of Lent, which is the 40 days before Easter, to focus on remembering. Remember this bigger story of God and God's work in the world and what Jesus might be doing in your life at this moment. What are some things that you could do this season to remember, to refocus on what's important, to actively turn away from that which is distracting you or holding you back and actively turn toward what is truly important. My friend recently found out that she has to move out of her house for a couple weeks because they've got some roof damage. They've had crazy ice dams on their old house for years and years and finally they're getting it fixed. But they need to pack up a lot of their stuff and move out for a couple weeks. And so she was lamenting that she, like probably most of us, have quite a few piles of paper in their house. And she said, what sh there was, she says, I was presented with this dilemma of what do I do with these piles of paper? 
And she said the temptation was to just take them all and stick them in a Rubbermaid bin and stick them in the attic to deal with later. And she said, instead, I'm really going to try to intentionally clean house, and I'm going to try to go through each piece of paper, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to file it, or I'm going to shred it, and I'm going to deal with it and be done once and for all. I'm going to really clean house instead of just shoving everything in storage to deal with it later. And I suspect that's what this invitation is for us during Lent. What would it look like to clean house? To actively listen to those voices and those people and those scripture passages that lead you toward Christ and to actively turn away from those voices, those people that lead you from Christ. As we close, I want to share with you that for me, I go back to scripture. And a verse that has brought me comfort time and time again comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I hold on to this so so tightly, and I give this to you uh, this morning as you prepare your hearts too. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this cloud of witnesses, which is each other, which are these stories of faithful people who have gone before us in Scripture, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious and loving God, again, we thank you for the gift of another day. We thank you for this church community that we need to rely on to help us remember in times of trial and in times of joy. May you be in our midst, Lord God. Give us the gift of remembering and refocusing as we prepare our hearts this time of Lent. In your name we pray, amen.